talked about some very difficult things and some very heavy things. If you were not here in week one, uh, Brian, the other teaching pastor who you saw here, he's over in Kenya now, talked about four mistakes to avoid in parenting. And I was, as I was sitting there and I was uh, seeing those, I'm like, yep, I've done that. Yep, I've done that. Check the box on that one. Check the box on that one. Awesome. You know, I'm over four here, you know, like difficult tough things, but great things to be reminded of as we journey ahead and, uh, and look ahead. In week number two, uh, I talked about um, a message entitled, It's Just a Phase, So Don't Miss It, with the idea being in each and every phase of a child's life, the tendency can be, oh, you know what, speed this up. I can't wait until this is done. I can't wait until they get on to the next level of responsibility but instead of going that direction, just to say, wait a minute, slow down the clock and let's take a look at each one of these and leverage the unique opportunity we have to influence them right there at that stage. I need to tell you guys, uh, after that particular message, I had, I'm not even kidding, probably seven or eight different people came up to me and they said, I am so mad at you right now. You made me cry in church. There's no crying in church. You know, and so we talked about not really mad, but just like, hey, don't you, who do you think you are to stir up those kinds of feelings, you know, and talking about how this time is gone and you're going to miss it. And we showed these videos that were powerful and, um, and it was a good conversation piece because honestly, as a pastor, we need to talk about, man, in, in a Sunday morning church service, we should be having the whole gamut of emotions you should be feeling here on Sunday morning. You know, you should be having joy. You should be laughing at times, at appropriate times. You know, we, we, we need to enjoy that part of life. God made us uh, whole beings and gave us that. You should feel moved and convicted. You should feel um, sadness at times, regret at times. And sometimes there are going to be opportunities where those little salty discharge things form and uh, just kind of spill on over. And as I was talking to one person in particular, you know, um, they said, I had to leave because I was just crying. And, you know, and I said, you know what? You know what's funny is I came across a quote a few years back that I've used a number of times. It said, God gave us tears to remind us of the things that matter the most. So when that happens and when those things are stirred up, we're not, we're not trying to manipulate anything. We're not trying to be, you know, that kind of place because there can be uh, presentations or opportunities or even churches where it's, you know, manipulation to get you to do something. We don't want to do that, but we do want to sometimes get down to the heart of the issue and the most important issues and the things that really do matter the most. And if that causes you to open up your heart and to take a look inside and to recognize that there's some change that needs to happen or something you need to feel or something you need to do, then that is, that's, that's awesome. We praise God for that. Uh, third week, last week, um, Brian talked about uh, a message entitled Broken, Blended, and Beautiful. And the idea that we recognize this is a broken world, and this is a messed up world, and there are many Many families, the majority of families that are not picture perfect, that are uh, single parent homes or there's been a great loss or there's been a divorce or there's been just ugliness and hurt and turmoil in the past 
or there's been unique opportunities of families blending together or adoption or foster care situations of which we've got all of those represented here. And we talked about how God is a God of redemption and God is a God who can pick up broken pieces and can meet you down there in the difficulty and can make something beautiful out of it in his time. And we heard an unbelievable story last week on video. Um, um, so we encourage you to go on the website. If you're, if you're listening in online, that'll be available uh, on the website for you, for you to watch and be impacted by. Um, and so that was really powerful last week. And, uh, and today, uh, just kind of wrap things up, the, the title of the message is Who Moved the Goalposts? Who Moved the Goalposts? And what we're going to be talking about is the ultimate end game, the ultimate goal and standards of what success really means. All right, now let me, let me ask you this. How many people this afternoon or tonight, one level or another, are planning on watching some NFL football? Raise your hand up really high like you're going to win a prize. Awesome. How many people at some point yesterday followed along with or watched uh, NCAA football yesterday on TV? Wow, lots of you. Good. NFL, college, we're pretty even. That's awesome. Well, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the goalpost in the NFL was not always at the very back of the end zone where it is right now, same as college. Uh, as a matter of fact, in, um, in 1927, that's where they were, but for some odd reason, in 1932, they decided they were going to move the goalposts to the very front of the end zone. And they stayed that way until 1974. So just imagine that for all of those decades, just imagine those goal line stances, all the plays that you're running where guys are going back and forth at the end zone, running back, cutting through whatever, people jumping over, all that is big metal poles right there at the front of the end zone. Are you picturing that? For decades and decades and decades until finally somebody's like, oh, you know what, maybe we should just move that back to where it was back in 1927. And so they did, and that's where it is to this day. So why do I mention that? What does that have to do with anything? Well, the idea of moving the goalposts is a very real idea for us here this morning. Moving the goalposts made field goals a lot easier, more points were scored, uh, and, and there's all, thing, all kinds of things that go along with that whole idea of changing the standard and making something easier. Uh, our kids have been involved in upward basketball. Anybody here been involved in upward basketball, right? Or some even, you know, recreation, kiddie league, whatever, you know, they take the 10-foot goals and they bring them way down here. And even as a grown adult, you know what? It's kind of fun to play in an eight-foot hoop because you really feel like a man. <laughs> I'm just saying. But the idea of like, all right, this is the standard. This is what it should be. But somebody came along and moved it. And what we're here to talk to you about this morning in our final, um, in our final message in this series is, you know what? There is a standard. There is something that God wants for families and for a church community to strive for, for their families. But somewhere along the line, that unfortunately has been moved way, way, way back. And if you think about it, 
it creates a big dilemma for us because we've got reality, which is the world that we live in, and then we've got the ideal, the things we're going to be talking about here. And for many of us, you know, this really could be a mantra for us. You know, life does not have to be perfect because in my world, it's really not. Life does not have to be perfect to be wonderful. And what about this one over here? Um, there's no place like home. And for me and for you, there is no place like our home. That's a unique setting. It's got a unique set of circumstances and issues and problems. But for many of us in our culture, we've been influenced by the dilemma that says, you know what, forget about the ideal. I'd rather just live over here in reality and whittle this standard, this goal way, way, way down. Think about this. Instead of going for the ideal and what God says, many of us make the standard what we are already doing to make ourselves feel better because this is normal. So what we're going to talk about here this morning is the idea that Jesus always raised up the standard high. If you've been around church for a while, you remember when he first came on the scene, he was talking to all of the people that were experts in the law, and he said, you've heard it said, uh, you know, do not commit adultery with a woman, but I say to you, anybody who even thinks lustfully towards a woman has already committed adultery. So he took the standard and like, okay, we can get that, and instead ratcheted it way up so that nobody could really attain that. He always went for the ideal versus normalcy. He always talked about the kingdom of heaven. Here's what the kingdom of heaven's like. Here's what the kingdom of heaven's like. And that seems impossible, but that's what God's standard is. And that's what Jesus exemplified for us. And that's what we're going to talk about here this morning. is a very high standard. But at the same time, Jesus never criticized or demoralized those who were trying to get to that standard and fell short. He recognizes that on our own we can't do it. That's why even like Brian talked about last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we've got this treasure. We have Christ in what we call jars of clay because they are easily broken and they're very weak and we have it in that jar of clay so that the power can be of Christ and not in ourselves. So it's amazing to me as we think about um, this idea of moving the goalposts and the standards and the goals that many of us, uh, perhaps you're in the business world and you spend months and even years strategizing and planning and coming up with measurables and statistics and um, you know, a, a, a plan and a step-by-step process to really get to that particular goal in your business. Even in the ministry world, we talk about what's our vision, what's our strategy, how are we going to get there, what steps are we going to take. So it's amazing that we spend so much time on this in the business world or in our workplace. But then when it comes to the idea of the family and what kind of goals, what kind of strategy, what kind of action steps would you like to take to accomplish this vision, there's just a bunch of blank space for most of us. We can talk about our bank accounts and our, and our retirement accounts and we can project it out to make sure that all this stuff is taken care of. But how much time do we spend looking at our spiritual accounts and our spiritual temperature of our family? And what strategy do we have to get where we want to be? Do we even know where we want to be? 
That's some of what we're going to be talking about today. It's going to be a very practical uh, message with some, with some action steps um, from God's Word that can help us understand what God's plan is for the family and how to get there. So just the way the message is organized, I've just got three quick points here that we can, uh, that we can unpack here um, as to how do we get there? How do we get to that standard? Well, the first thing that we need to do, number one, is you need to recognize that change comes from the top. You need to recognize that change comes from the top. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, for mothers and fathers and those of us that are, that are in uh, leadership in a home, it's got to start with us first and in our heart first and then be able to trickle down to our kids. It's amazing how the culture and even the culture within the church walls uh, desires to come and kind of abdicate that responsibility to uh, the student ministry or to the kids ministry and they don't hear anything Monday through Saturday uh, in their homes about this and yet Sundays when we talk about God. That's reality for a lot of families. The change has got to come from the top in two different ways. The first one is influence. Influence for us who are men, for us who are women, and, and in leader, leadership. And as I was really praying over this message, as I was thinking about you guys, picturing you guys, many of you I know, and just asking God to bring me some concepts and what can I package together and, and deliver that's from you, uh, I really feel like God led me to Acts chapter 16 in this unique account. I'll just read it for you here quickly. You can look it up later on if you'd like, but it's pretty incredible, this story. It's about Paul and Silas and how they were in prison um, for, for sharing the gospel. And let me just read it to you. It says this, and about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the next verse says, uh, and the prisoners were listening to them. I don't know what kind of crowd um, people who are in jail make, but apparently Paul and Silas were singing out and they were praying and they had the audience. Listen to this, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all of the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened and the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. In that culture, the jailer was responsible uh, for keeping these captives uh, in the prison and it was almost immediate death if for some reason they had escaped and he was about ready to just fall on his own sword and, and take his own life. But check this out. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Cyrus. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And it's such a beautiful scene and we could, we could capitalize on that for the whole entire time and talk about how Paul and Silas had been sharing the gospel and talking about the gospel and singing about the gospel. Then all of a sudden when this situation happened, they get the chance to now demonstrate the gospel. We could have left, but we knew that you would be hurting yourself. We've been working on you. We've been praying for you. So we are all right here. Hello. We're all here. Just here. I'll sing another song for you if you want. But the guy was so impacted by their actions. He said, what must I do to be saved? I believe now. What must I do to be saved? 
And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. I want you to center in on that phrase and, and listen to how many times that is said. And they, that is Paul and Silas, spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Did you catch that account? Four different times, just in that one little paragraph, that whole idea of it was the Philippian jailer and his household. He had seen God's grace. He had experienced his mercy in this situation, I believe. Oh, by the way, everybody, sons, daughters, wife, uh, wives, maybe, who knows, come on over here. You've got to hear what these guys have to say. You've got to believe this. You need to listen to this. And it says immediately, he was baptized. Yup, it's time for you guys to, you need to do this too. You believe as well? Come on over here. You need to be baptized as well. Four different times. So what does that say to us? Man, that's just a reminder for us of the influence that we hold as the leaders of our family. How important is it for us to lead the way, coming from the top down, and to bring our family along with us so they can see that reality as well? Growing up with my parents, they, they really made an effort to fill our house with spirituality and scripture, not just on Sunday mornings, but all over. I can remember a little picture that was on my wall, kind of in, this, um, in the kitchen, like uh, kind of King James lettering, you know what I'm talking about? Like the old calligraphy, and it says, only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last and that small little phrase I saw that all the time when I was four or five and when I was nine and when I was 14 and when I was 18 and when I go back to this day it's still right there that reminder that that scriptural concept that you know what all the other stuff that you could be involved in it's all going to be fading away only what's done for Jesus will last they made an effort to fill our homes with that and to be an influence. I can remember on the inside of my, uh, you know, we had a television and right, right on the uh, inside flap as you open the doors, right here, there was a big uh, uh, half sheet of paper and it said uh, a verse from Psalm uh, 10, um, 102, verse 3. And it said this. It said, I will set... No wicked thing before my eyes. Right in front of the TV. You couldn't watch TV without seeing that little reminder right next to you. So here I am, 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, and it's Sunday afternoon, and my whole family's gone, my parents are taking a nap, and my sisters are gone, and I'm just sitting there flipping through the TV, and oh, that looks interesting. I've heard this is a good movie. I think it's a bad movie, but nobody's around. Eh, let's just check it out. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. Mom! Just always staring at me, scripture reminding me, God using these little things all over the place to influence me, even as a young man. It's very important for us as parents to start taking those steps and recognize our influence. 
The second way is that we can um, use not only our influence, but our authority as well. Well, what do you mean, your authority? Well, I think a lot of times um, parents like to exert that power and authority, right? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That's the one that's all over the walls of my house, in each of my kids' bedrooms. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But we love that idea like, no, we've got authority. God gave us the authority and the power to tell you what to do. Ephesians chapter 5, you know, wives, submit to your own husband. Like, I've got the power, and I'm going to tell you what to do. Authority. It's interesting, though, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, is kind of the parallel verse to that. And, um, you know, the concept is opened up there a little bit more. And it says this, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way. Be patient with them, showing honor to them since they are heirs with you. So, yeah, maybe God looks at the husband and is like, okay, I'm holding you ultimately responsible. So in that sense, there's some power and authority. But guess what? Your wife is a co-heir with you. She is equal with you before God and at the cross. So there's this element of power that we love to exert on our kids, like obey us and do what we say because we're the boss. But the trickle-down um, economics, if you want to say, the change coming from the top and trickling down simply says this, no matter what the authority is, no matter what the power is, you can still honor God by proving to be a servant. Even as a parent, you can be a servant. If you ask yourself this one question, this is huge, every day, just ask each of your kids, ask your wife, ask your spouse this one question, how can I help you? I want you to ask that to the person right next to you, go. Now go, turn the other way, how can I help you? Say it and mean it. Look them in the eye. Somebody's like, I'm a visitor, this place is really weird. How can I help you? How can I serve you? When we think about what comes from the top down, we think about who's all the way at the top. And that's Jesus, right? It says in Scripture, all authority had been given to him. All power had been given to him. And yet, in the Gospels, it's Jesus who, instead of exerting that authority, got down as low as possible. And he even said in the presence of the disciples, all authority has been given to me, but I want to show you a better way. I'm going to show you a better example. I'm going to really show you what love is, and it involves serving. How can I serve you? How can I help you? So can you imagine if we as parents said that same thing, even to our kids and certainly to each other and to other people at our workplace and said, you know, I want to be like Jesus and yeah, he's given us power, he's given us authority, but I want to I ask you this question, how can I help you today? How can I serve you today? Because nobody would look at Jesus and say, hey, you know what, he was weak. And look at what he did, he's powerless the opposite. He showed us a better way to live by taking his authority and using it to show love. Second way that we can reach God's standard is to capitalize on monuments and pillars. Capitalize on monuments 
and pillars. The book of Joshua, chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, gives us a beautiful illustration. One of many in the scriptures about that. Here's what happened. Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and each take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in the time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. When you talk about the idea of a a, a monument or a memorial, you talk about some sort of physical representation of what God has done in your life. And when you talk about the idea of pillars, you start talking about the idea of foundational things that are going to hold this building up. And for Joshua and for the nation of Israel, they said, you know what? We need some memorials because we need some pillars to hold us up and remind us in the really bad times that God is faithful. And I wonder how many of us have really taken some of these concepts to heart. And when you see God uh, intervene, when you see these moments of change and you want to capitalize on them and influence your son or your daughter, are you taking the time to do something concrete and memorable so that they can look back on it and realize what had happened? I love the purpose is so clear in this. Why are we doing this? So that when your children ask, you'll have something to represent so they will remember and you can share them. Let me just um, give you a couple of ideas of how you can capitalize on some of these key moments. When you think about, um, when you think about a child's life, I know that there are several in here that are pregnant or have just had a newborn. When you think about these different pillars, these different... Um, in, you know, moments where you can really capitalize on it. Certainly, a baby dedication is one of them. Here at Northwest, we invite any family uh, that, that wants to stand before this body of believers and say, you know what, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm really scared. This is a soul, and I'm going to need your help, so please pray for me as I dedicate this child and dedicate my efforts to raise this child to God. We want to invite you to be a part of that. And what if at that moment when you've done that uh, or when you're getting ready to do that, you actually wrote them a letter? At that moment, when they're six months or two years or five years old, and just tell them what's going on in your heart. Tell them what you're feeling right now. Write out a prayer for them. I'll tell you what, the Apostle Paul over and over in Scripture said, here's my prayer for, for you For this church, here's my prayer. I pray that you may come to know him more and more and that the eyes of your heart may be open to Ephesians believers. He write out these massive, incredible, encouraging prayers. What if we took that step with our own kids and the people that we have influence over? Said, here's my prayer for you. I pray that that you would remain pure. I pray that you would have godly friendships. I pray that you would come to know and love this book and that you would come to know the God of the universe. 
something that they could hold in their hands, something that they could read later, something that can remind them of what you were feeling when you received this gift of that child. What about when they get baptized? You can definitely capitalize on that. What if, you know, in our culture from 12 to 13, when you get that teen at the end of the, uh, you know, their age, something changes. Now I've got teenagers. And so what does that mean? Well, that means that you're growing up and you're entering into adulthood and we're going to be giving you more and more responsibilities. But what if I took advantage of this moment and just wrote something out or, or, or thought ahead and got you some gift, some object that will represent some deep spiritual truth that I want to stick with you. One of the things that we've been doing every single uh, week here as part of the series, again, today being the last week, is we've created these placemats for you, one for each member of your family, and hopefully you got those as you were leaving if you've been here. And, and today we want you to grab one as well, and here's why. One of the things that we have on this week's Placemat is an opportunity for you as a family to dream and brainstorm and write out some goals and some vision and some values for your family. In other words, what do we want this family to be known for? And let's write down some ideas. We want to be known as a generous family. We want to be known as a family that, that laughs together. We want to be known as a family that whatever... Just write them on out, brainstorm them, good. Now let's take those and let's pick the top three and let's circle them and let's say as a family, these are the things that we want to value. There's such power in that. And it's not, again, mom and dad, you know, driving it all. Let's get ideas from the younger ones as well and let them lead the way like so often happens in Scripture. Well, it's going to be hard, or it's going to be awkward, it's going to be weird. Yeah, it might be. Probably will be. But guess what? Anything good in life is worth fighting for. Amen? When you talk about a high standard versus normalcy, well, to get to that high standard, it's going to be a battle. You better believe it's going to be a battle. But guess what? You know what Nehemiah did? He got together all these people, and to build a wall, he said, I'm going to get you together by families. I want you to be working alongside your sons and your daughter and your wife because you're all building something and this is the goal and I want you to be reminded as you're working hard of who you're working for. It is going to be a fight. It is going to be difficult. But it is so worth it. And finally, the last thing, the last way that we can reach this goal, attain this goal, is you want to bring in other voices of influence. You've heard us talk about this. We're going to continue to talk about this. We've talked before about this giant X, if you can just imagine right here, parents, a giant X just like that. Right here, these are your kids' ages from 0 to 18, going like that. And this X going this way starts with your, uh, you being the primary influence and the primary voice in their life. And guess what? It hangs out up here for a little while when they're two and when they're four and five and six and they're asking you about everything. Well, should I wear this? Does this look good? You know, what should I sign up for? Can you help me? Can you drive me? Can you do this, that, and the other? And that's up here, but guess what? The older they get, it starts to go down. The older they get, your voice doesn't become ineffective, 
but it becomes less influential as the primary thing they're listening to the older they get. And so what that means is they're going to be looking for a lot of other affirmation. They're going to be looking and listening for a lot of other voices to tell them how they should dress and what they should do and where their place is. And I'll tell you what, we need to take the example of Scripture that says, you know what, sometimes parents need a little bit of help and need other influences. I wrote up here um, uh, the idea that uh, bringing other influences and um, a great example of that is uh, Samuel in Scripture. You remember Eli was there and the parents dropped Samuel off uh, at, the, at the temple to be raised by Eli. And over and over again he had a dream and he thought God was calling him, Samuel, Samuel. And um, he kept on going into Eli. Hey, did you call me? What's going on? What do you need? Nope, it wasn't me. You know what? Maybe it was God talking to you. And sure enough, it was. But with the idea being that, that Samuel's parents needed another voice to interpret and encourage their son and direct their son. I can tell you from personal experience, I've had many voices speak into me. And I want to just share one story with you here as we get ready to close. And if you've been sitting around my dinner table or on my back porch at some point, I may have shared this with you, certainly with some of our student ministry staff, encouraging them to be this other voice. I've shared this deep part of my life. But when I was 16 years old, I had a mentor, a volunteer youth pastor. His name was Dan. Single guy, 35, 40 years old. And, um, and he really poured into me and several other guys. He saw something in us even when we were punks, even when we were selfish, even when we were irresponsible and fake. And Dan called me one day and said, hey man, I, you know, I really want to spend the day with you. I got something planned, so let me pick you up. I'm like, all right, sounds good. So he drove a half an hour away and picked me up and, and brought me back to his house. And he's like, hey, you know, I need to actually scrape down this wall upstairs. I'm getting ready to do some painting, but you can just hang out down here, watch some TV, uh, do what you need to do. I'm going to be upstairs. And so I'm like, no, man, you know, I'll, I'll come help you. I don't want to just be sitting down here. So I went upstairs, helped him for an hour or two, and, and then we went out to lunch. And we went to a diner, and, uh, you know, uh, he paid for my meal, and he was using the restroom, and the waitress came back and put the change down there, the cash, and instead of a $1 bill, she actually put down a $20 bill. Our whole meal was only like, you know, $14 or something, but yet there was a 20 sitting there. And Dan started walking back. I'm like, oh, excuse me, ma'am. Uh, I'm sorry, this is the wrong change. You know, like you must have, here you go, you know, whatever. And we got it all figured out. And then after that, we went to this gym. And my friend Dan was a probation officer. So one of the things that he had to do was check up on some of these, you know, convicted uh, felons, basically. Some of these guys that, you know, were in trouble. And so we went to this really seedy part of town in the inner city. And he's like, I got to go look for this guy. You can sit here and hang out. And it was a gym. And these guys were playing basketball, looking like they could all uh, hurt me very badly. But I'm just sitting there, you know. <laughs> and uh, this guy sits next to me and just starts telling me about his story, telling me about his life, into drugs and got in trouble and basically saying, I don't want to live anymore. I said, hey, man, you know, it's weird. I don't really even know you, but, you know, I do know that there can be hope, and, and I believe in God, and this is where I find my hope. And let me, can I share you, with you about Jesus? Have you heard about him? And I shared the gospel with him. 
And then after that, we left, and Dan said, I got one more stop that I need to make, and it, by this time it was 5, 6 o'clock at night. It was dark out, pulled up in front of his house, went inside for about 20 minutes, and I'm just sitting there in this inner city, um, dangerous part of town, just all alone. Um, and, uh, and then he came out, and he said, you know, I want you to know something, Jerry. Today was a day that I've been planning for you for a while. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, that whole thing this morning with painting, he's like, I really wanted you to see that uh, being a true man of character means that you help people out and you're a servant instead of just being comfortable. And you did that. Later on with, with the waitress, I had lined up with her beforehand to give you too much change because I really wanted to see if you were a man of character and I wanted to see if you could be honest even when nobody else was watching. And you did that. He said, later on at the gym, I had lined up one of my guys, one of my probation guys, to, to come up with you, and I wanted to see if you would be willing to share the hope of the gospel, even in a circumstance where you were maybe afraid, and you did that. And then he said, remember that thing outside of my house where you were outside for like 20 minutes? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, I had lined up uh, somebody to come, this 25-year-old uh, felon that I work with and he was going to um, pretend to be beating up his girlfriend right in front of the headlights but he never showed up <laughs> and I'm like that's a good thing because I don't really know what I would have done in that situation <laughs> hey stop you know or like duck down and like wah, wah. somebody help honking the horn you know the guy never showed up but he said, I wanted to see if you were going to be somebody willing to put your life in danger or at least bodily harm in order to see justice accomplished. And I look back at that one day of investment. This guy didn't spend any money at all that day outside of, you know, $14 for lunch. But he leveraged the time to teach a lifelong lesson that I remember to this day. He was another voice that God used. Not just my mom and dad. Because if they would have done something like that, this is so stupid, why are we doing, you know? But the fact that there's other people pouring in makes all the difference in the world. And I'm here to tell you right now as a pastor here and somebody that loves this church, I really, my heart's desire for our body is to is to engage in the opportunities that we've set up. Our kids' ministry going on right now, there's leaders that love all these little kids. They know them by name. They're pouring into them. They're teaching them. Our middle school that just got done last hour, there's leaders that love you and are investing in you, our high school. Opportunities to hear other voices, leveraging uh, that time to really pour in. And so as we close, I just... I just really want to challenge us to think through, man, what, what are the goals? What have we been looking at? And unfortunately, I think for many, it's like, I almost hate to even think about it because, man, we really haven't been doing a whole lot at all. Strategy, goals, spirituality, it's, it's hardly, you know, it's difficult enough just to get my kids to come to church on Sunday. Well, man, we don't bring these messages to beat you up or to come down on you or anything like that. But we're just here to say, man, what if God would have us really think through some of these things? And instead of the goalposts being so easily uh, attainable, like, you know what, just have a good kid that goes to a good college and gets good grades and makes lots of money, and let's, let's whittle it down to that. When if you're a follower of Jesus and you're here this morning, you would recognize, well, you know what, we've only got one life, and 
It's soon going to be done, and only what's done for Christ will last. Everything else is going to fade away. So let's strive together to, to reach that standard. And let's pray. Bow your heads with me, please. Our Father and our God, you are incredible. Lord, I thank you that you've given us the opportunity to dive into your word today and to look at some different examples and some different illustrations. And God, I pray even for any men here, Lord, that we would be like that immature Philippian jailer that barely even knew you for 30 seconds and immediately wanted to go get his whole family and bring them in on it. God, I pray that you would infuse our men with power. And Father, for our, for our women, for our mothers, for our influential women and, and men as well, God, I pray that we would all have the attitude of a servant like Jesus did, that that would trickle down and that that love would be shown just like your son Jesus showed us. Yeah, God, and we just, uh, we just thank you for all these lessons. Lord, help us to be people of vision, people of strategy. And help us to encourage each other as it's still called today. We love you, God. Thank you for being our rock. In so much turmoil, in so much brokenness, thank you for being the one that we can stand on, the one that we can build on. And Lord, I just pray that uh, this would be a place of hope and redemption, even this morning. God, even for somebody that's feeling like they're a failure, or they've already missed it, or their kids are already grown, or they've already gone too far, or they've already made too many mistakes. Lord, I pray that you would just remind us that as long as we have breath, you desire to do a work in us. And change is possible. And redemption is near. So we love you, God, and we thank you.